back in World Cup Coffee and Tea in Portland at Northwest 18th and Gleason for another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. I'm Tom D'Antoni. With me today is one of those people behind the scenes whose name you may only know if you read liner notes. That is, if you still buy CDs. His name is Bob Stark, and he's a recording engineer, a producer, arranger, mixer, and composer. He's worked on Grammy Award winners by Esperanza Spalding and the album by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. What's it, what's it like for a guy like Bob in a music world gone DIY? He was at Kung Fu Bakery in Portland for a long time and now works out of Sonic Media. What's he up to? What are his latest projects? And what's it like moving from engineer to producer? Let's meet Bob Stark, shall we? Bob, welcome to the cupping room. Ah, thank yes. you. Glad to have you here. I will let everyone know that this is not the first time we've done this. Um, <laughs> you were in here, and the computer crashed, and we recovered. We thought, I thought, <laughs> I thought we had recovered it. Computers have their way. But no, <laughs> no. Uh, we, I, it, it, uh, half of it was, uh, it was, when I opened it up, only half of it was there. And uh, I guess I should have, when when the the first part came up, I guess I should have saved it. I'm on Instead a computer. Of, I'm on a project right now where the computer is choosing to have its way. Oh, jeez, really? <laughs> yeah. What, so what's it doing? It's uh, it's just being entertaining and uh, <laughs> not wanting to completely open a file, and so oh, you know you have to go through the rigmarole of salvaging, <laughs> which which is easy but it's always like a five minute annoyance that you would never have time for <laughs> i had a problem in here um, a couple months ago uh for some reason one of the mics wasn't working i mean it didn't it didn't appear it didn't that record way. oh okay so when i went to put it up you know uh i was getting you know the other person's audio through this mic my mic got it okay so what am i going to do i don't want to do it again because uh, it was Mel Brown, and it was going to be, you know, yeah, yeah, and uh, it was in the middle of the jazz festival. So good old Mike Doolin, you know Mike, right? Mm -hmm. He he made about twenty five hundred edits. Holy moly! Yeah, <laughs> salvage, yeah, and salvaged it, yeah. Yes. Salvage forensic work. <laughs> so I'm not worried that that we did one of these before because I have no retention. And I can't remember anything we talked about. Uh, so it's okay. It's all new to me. Great. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, you've been away from Kung Fu Bakery for a few years now, right? Yes. Uh, I left there f almost five years ago now. Um, no regrets and no hard feelings, but uh, it was just time to move on from there. And, and uh, I was... A lot of things were changing in the business at that point or in my business, yeah. whereas becoming a little less of an engineer and a little more of a producer and a ranger. Huh. So uh, it, it made sense to leave. It, it, I didn't need that big of a facility for what I was doing, and it made sense to go there and schedule sessions when I needed it. So where is headquarters now? Headquarters is at Sonic Media, which is a facility owned by Paul Nelson over in northeast Portland, uh, uh, a couple blocks off of Sandy. And uh, I have a 16 by 20 room there that I lease from him. Uh -huh. And uh, I do all my editing, all my mixing, uh, all my pre-production, kind of all the stuff that's that's necessary where I don't need a big studio anymore. Uh -huh. um, and then when I need a big studio, I'll, I'll rent a space. You have a you have a favorite? Uh, right now, I don't. I I've been working up at Crossroads a little bit. I mm -hmm. like that room. I like Dead Aunt Thelma's over in Selwood. Mike Moore always just yeah. keeps that place running wonderfully. Yeah. 
this place has been around a long time now. It has been, and uh, it was here. It was open when I got here twenty years ago. Yeah, and yeah. it's very well maintained. I yeah. mean, it's the one great thing about that studio is Mike is very conscious of if something breaks down, it's like it's out of the room until it's yeah. fixed. Yeah. And is it still owned by the Catholic Church? It still is owned by the That's Catholic amazing. Church. That's amazing, and and they're still doing all their production. They are. Jeez. But, I mean, well, I mean, uh, you know, they've been doing their production <laughs> for a long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, when uh, they bought it from uh, Scott, who, Scott, uh, oh, why can't I remember his name right now? But, I mean, it's like, you know, they'd been using the room a lot, and yeah. so it just made sense for them to, like, yeah. oh, you're moving to Nashville? We'll go ahead and uh-huh. hire the place. What was it before that? It was Dead Ant Thelma's. Oh, still, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and how long has that been around? Uh, boy. Because I've been here 20 years. Probably about that, because yeah. I remember it opening when I worked at Whitehorse. Uh-huh. So it's been at least that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. I remember they, when I first got here, I did a Scott piece. Parker. Okay. I had to. <laughs> when I first got here, I did a piece on, for the Oregonian on Terry Robb, who, you know, because I got here and just was discovering everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was doing a lot of work there, and, and I just, I remember... The first, this is the first time it happened after I moved here was they 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 framed they framed the story and put it on the wall mm-hmm. and I went oh that's nice yeah <laughs> that's nice um, I don't think it's happened since then but no. <laughs> <laughs> no. framing is expensive <laughs> can be so are you doing um, more uh, production or producing and I, arranging or I, engineering now? I would say what I'm doing the most is mixing and uh, oh. string orchestral arrangements. Uh-huh. Uh, that's been the bulk of my work. I have a client in New York that uh, has been very good to me and uh, throws me compositions and says, arrange these how you hear them. And uh, we're now at the point where we're starting to employ a, a few uh, lyricists and uh, try to uh, advance this music. Um, you know, we're not using Portland as the constraint. Uh-huh. It's, we're using Portland as a platform to gather uh-huh. uh, some good stuff from. Like, you know, there's so many great players in town. Like, I'm using people like John Nastos. Yeah. And, David Evans and Tom Barber just relentlessly as much as I can. Um, All the people who can read. Yeah, basically, yeah, (laughs) uh, or improvise really well. Uh I've ran across a keyboardist the last couple months, uh, Michael Elson, who I didn't know before the session that I did with Chance Hayden. And uh, he's an amazing player. His time feel Uh is wonderful. And uh, pocket is so important in the music that I'm doing. A lot of it is pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, has a little bit of an R&B or a little bit of a dance tinge to it. Um, and a lot of the jazz players seem to get that. Uh, Alan oh, yeah. Jones, in particular, has been wonderful to work with on a yeah. lot of this. Yeah. He's I can't imagine he wouldn't be wonderful to work with on anything. <laughs> true, it's true. And I've been working with he and his, uh, and Taylor John Williams, his stepson. Yeah. And uh, what Alan brings to the table on those projects to me is always amazing. It's like genuine producer in his own right. Really yeah. wonderful, yeah. great producer. Yeah. You know the great uh, uh, Alan Jones boo boo? He put a CD out one time and didn't include any of the people on it or the tracks. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's always those moments. <laughs> it was a great album. It was a fabulous album. Probably. Yeah. And he's not going to, knowing Alan, he's not going to put out something bad. None of the information was on it. What do I do with this? I'd like to play it on the radio, but you know. I can't tell you anything, <laughs> I and I don't know how long it. the song is. It's an Alan Jones album, but you know, I mean, you just have to just just have to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that was you know, in, in, way back in the LP days, hardly anybody got credit. It was a long time there before people started get, getting extensive credits on on album covers. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. nice thing about like the early. 
I can remember the Riverside albums and, uh-huh. and the early Columbia albums. It's like first thing you do is flip the album over and see yeah. who played on it because right. you know well it's a herbie hancock album but who's on this album with right. herbie and right. it's like right. do i want to buy this or not and right and then a lot of times uh it, uh, it, it would be a black artist uh, a black male artist and the album cover would have a a a, a, a sultry white female yeah exactly <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I miss that now that uh-huh. we're in the age of digital downloads, and I still find myself buying a CD most of the time if it's something I really like. Because, yeah. so, you know, I hate searching the internets to see who right. did what. And yes. um, so, so it's worth that $9 for me to yeah, have Amazon are, send there, me a there CD. There are some people in town who don't tell you. Yeah. You know, they'll just say, hey, here's my new record. Uh, and then you don't know who's on it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, what are these? What are these pieces of music used for? Uh, hopefully, they'll be used within uh, the context of film. I yeah. Mean, basically, yeah. what we're doing is a glorified film scoring demo. Okay. And uh, there's. He's also building a library, which there aren't many uh-huh. orchestral libraries out there. So um, we're up to maybe about 90 to 100 pieces of music wow. right now. How many do you need for a library? To make a library? We're we're getting into that world about now. I think wow. if we get about 50 more wow. ready to go, then we could legitimately go out there and market it uh-huh. and. You know, and not have redundant placements. It's like every once in a while you'll yeah. see an ad on TV, and then ten minutes later you'll see an ad, and it has the same music underneath yeah. it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, so that's definitely a licensed piece of music. And yeah. uh, there is a market out there for orchestral music or something that's, uh, you know, not so much put together in fifteen minutes. Are you writing these? Uh, I'm arranging. You're arranging. Yes. The composer is Christopher James. Um, and Chris's story is kind of interesting because he uh, started out as a composer, arranger in German television. He's from Portland. Really? Yes. And he moved to Germany and worked his way through German TV and film did some scoring and eventually went to work for Deutsch Grammophone and uh, at that point he kind of worked his way up through the company and it had to abandon his composition and worked to the position of head of jazz and classics worldwide universal records mm. so like all the labels like Verve Forecast and yeah. so he's responsible for signing people like Wayne Shorter and uh John Schofield, and uh-huh. so he had a lot of clout in the industry, and he left uh, Universal about five years ago, and decided he wanted to pursue the world of writing music again. Oh. And in his time, at, while he was at Universal, I did three albums with he and Jeff Leonard uh-huh. uh, under the band name of Val Gardena, which were just kind of ambient new age records. Um, really beautiful writing and I think what he's doing now is kind of an outgrowth of that writing. And did you did you uh, engineer produce? Engineer and range? co-produce a couple of the albums okay. but mainly played the role of engineer on uh-huh. those albums. Uh-huh. So you're almost there. Wait another year? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Hopefully sooner. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it's uh, we'll take it as it comes. What's the process? Uh, you know, the business side is a little bit foreign to me, so I'm taking my cues from Chris as to what the process is going to be. So I'm, well, I'm I mean, learning. I mean, for making the tunes. Oh, for making the tunes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the process is Chris will sit at piano, um, invent the tune to the point where he likes it Uh then he'll record it literally on his iphone voice memo Uh he'll email it to me and go here it is transcribe this and orchestrate it (laughs) that's the process and so i take it and then we'll send notes back and forth 
once I've done the initial orchestration or arrangement, because sometimes it's turning into full-on pop tunes, electronic drums, blah, blah, blah. Other times it's a very lush orchestral arrangement. So it, it's he's kind of leaving that muse, that portion of the muse up to yeah. me. For an example, he sent me this song recently called uh, Dirge for Surge. Uh-huh. And it's you know, at 45 beats per minute, very slow, very interesting harmonically. And my initial thought was to um, arrange it for orchestra. And where it sits now, it's arranged completely for electronic music. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see what happens with it. You know, it's it's in the bin now, and it feels like a very good piece of music. Now, among the things that music fans don't understand, which is everything. <laughs> uh, the whole concept, in p- music fans never, ever think in terms of beats per minute. Okay. You know that? Ever. Okay, I mean, I just this go to never, concerts and I think, oh, this well, this never like crosses <laughs> any music fan's mind, ever. Right. No, I think it's how it hits them emotionally. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line is, right. do they have an emotional reaction to it and is it the emotional reaction you were looking to draw out of them with a piece of music you were creating. Um, So I guess beats beats per minute for me talking to another musician is relative because they get that and they understand it. Whether or not the public understands it, you know, I don't care, but I want to see the public react to the music. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah, oh, it's yeah. breaking my heart, even though it doesn't have lyrics. <laughs> or it's it's uh, yeah. it's amusing me because yeah, yeah. it feels happy. Yeah. But sometimes that beats per minute thing is the way you communicate it to yeah. other musicians. Well, the irony, the irony, of course, of all music for all time, and especially now, is, I mean... Scales and all that stuff are, are 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 foreign enough to people, right? But adding all the electronics in and all the things that you do, um, it's it, it, the the irony is that the sausage that comes out the other side is beauty. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but don't you see, you know, see yes. what I mean? Yeah. It's <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it's a. I used to ask people. Um, and I don't know why I stopped asking them, <laughs> but I did, uh, is, is how, how does it get from your head to your heart to your hands and out of your hand, out through your hands? That, I've never had a good, a good answer. That's not really true. Gary Gunther, that, the, the, the woodwind player from Kung Fu, uh, who used to be a psychologist, mm-hmm. he gave me a great answer, but I, it, it got lost. <laughs> then okay. I asked him again, and it was years, years and years later, I asked him again, and it was like, uh, Laurel and Hardy was, would uh, uh, um, Ollie would go say that again, and Stan could never say it's slightly it. different. Yeah. And so I did. I did. I did another interview with him ten years later, and it came out all wrong. But I don't. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure that there are explanations, and, and um, but uh, it's a it's a mystery. It's one of the mysteries of life. Oh, I, you know, I, you just have to chalk it up to the, like it's an individual creative process and. How each person is creative is probably a different process with each person. Um, I mean, my process is based around time of day. Really? It's very much, it's like 7 o'clock in the evening till about 1 in the morning is when I'm most creative. And it's like, if I have to take a dinner break or something, then it's like, I'm like, I don't want to do that. Do you know why? I have no idea why. (laughs) It's either like when I feel like the, it could be as simple as the business of the day is done. Yeah. yeah. Now I could sit down and just let things happen. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and there's a certain freedom that happens. Uh, an interesting thing that um, was taught recently. I was having trouble with an arrangement, and so I was told to. Just stop and put one note down and consider that to be a good note and then put another note down. And if it needs a note to go with it, put that note down too. If it doesn't, 
don't if it needs space. And, and the concept that we were getting at was to abandon everything I had learned. Wow. Because that's a hindrance. Now, uh, and I got this guy's point, and I've kind of been running with that concept for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. It's been very productive time for me. And the great thing is about having, you know, whatever composition and arranging classes I've taken in my past, it's like, it's a place to fall back if I get into a problem. Yeah. yeah. And and the arrangements have been so much better than wow. they've ever been in the past. Huh. It's just like, let go and just let the music be what it needs to be. Wow. And, and, and try not to dictate what it needs to be. Uh-huh. And I know that's kind of a weird concept, but no, it's what it's, works. No, I don't think it's weird. I just think that, you know, when you get old, you'll forget anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. No, no, I mean, there's there's a running joke I have with a, a drummer in town where he he's, will work with some young people, and they're, like, rattling off all these things about music theory, and, yeah. and eventually he'll go... You know, I've forgotten more music theory than you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a famous old line. Uh, yeah. It's, however, uh, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've been working with Chance Hayden? I have been. Did you work on his new album? Uh, we're in the process of it. Uh, it's about, I don't know, it might be 100% mixed by the time this is done. I think we're about 90% mixed yeah. now. Got a couple of things to touch up and... Uh, it's a it's a slow process only because of funding and and I understand that and you know it's such a weird time right now uh, I've been looking and watching um, artists on YouTube and uh-huh. I have a current favorite Jane uh-huh. and I'm watching her rack up plays on her videos yeah. and one of her videos is up to like eighty million right now. Uh-huh. And I started thinking about the money that it, the artist actually makes from those plays. Yeah. And it's like 80 million. Okay, so she has enough made from that that she could realistically go in and make a good album now because that's going to net her about $60,000. Wow. For 80 million plays. 80 million. Um, which is, you know. It, it just doesn't seem fair to the artists. I mean, the right. whole thing about... Right. We, we were pretty lucky in the 80s, I and mean, I had a couple songs that were placed with a, a fusion band that I was in and um, had a song that was a theme song in Japan for a while, and it's like, we got paid well just for those placements, yeah. and that's yeah. not happening anymore. Uh-huh. And uh, that... I think that kind of deters a lot of really good people from uh-huh. pursuing a music career. Yeah. It's like, yeah. how do I m- make a living doing this? Does it make sense? So it's not just. I'll just not, go be not, an accountant. It's not just music. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, you know. You, you know, music and business. It is commerce, yeah. and art is commerce, yeah. and it's unfortunately tied together, but. It is. 20 years ago, I could sit down and knock out a, a, an op-ed piece for the Oregonian and get 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a Facebook post. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it said that instead of post or whatever, the, the uh, button should say publish. <laughs> yeah, well, we know better. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> well, these days every post is an op-ed anyway. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, I did. Uh, I wrote liner notes for the EP that Chance put out. Oh, great! Yeah, seemed to me it was a kind of a jumping-off point for the rest of for for the next step. His next step. Mm-hmm. You think? I do. the The rest of the album is very much in the vein of the three song demo, uh-huh. and uh, the three song demo that you wrote the liner notes for 
all of those songs have been tweaked a little bit or and uh-huh. are I would consider them substantially better uh-huh. than what was put out on the EP and it wasn't so much in the performance it's actually we just went back and sonically looked at them mm-hmm. with a finer tooth comb and yeah. and uh, stepped them up a bit you really think people can hear the difference if you sat people if you sat people down um, I think so yeah if they can't hear the difference they can f- feel the emotional difference okay. I think mm-hmm. um, but some of these changes were pretty substantial, like edit out a part of a song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, they're, they're, yeah. yeah, you'd hear the difference on those. <laughs> so you started out as a, as a keyboard player? I started out as a guitarist. A guitarist, okay. Um, I started out very young, <laughs> like eight years old eight. or something. Uh, played guitar all the way through high school, uh, had a band in high school. We went out and gigged and was making reasonable money on weekends. Actually missed my senior prom because I was playing another school wow. senior prom and oh, it's like, wow. well, do I want to make, you know, yeah. Yeah. do I want to make a thousand dollars tonight? Or looking back, do you think you made the right decision? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but um, no, the... And then I got to college, and there were so many guitarists in college. And at the time, there was no keyboardists. Mm. And um, all of my sisters, I have three older sisters, and they all played piano at the house. And mm-hmm. So I heard piano every day. And I'd go over to the piano. I couldn't read piano music or anything, but I could certainly hear things. And a lot of, you know, that's probably my improvisation on piano started ah. very young uh-huh. but never did anything with piano until college and then uh, took classes or took privately from uh, Harry Gilgum and Eddie Weed uh-huh. and uh, just got grilled <laughs> <laughs> where was that uh, at Clackamas Community okay and then uh, later when I was down at Portland State with Eddie Weed and uh, I remember one event specifically, like, I finally felt like I was kind of getting it together, and I went up to this jazz club that was in Vancouver, and Harry Gilgum was playing with Tom Wakeling and uh-huh. Gary Hobbs. And it's like, come on up here and sit in. I have to go back to the bathroom. So it's just one song. <laughs> it's like, all right. So what do you want to play? And I felt like uh, I kind of got A-Train under my hand. So <laughs> let's play Take the A-Train. So Hobbs counts it off at this, for me at that time, ungodly tempo. <laughs> and, you know, get life lessons doing that kind of thing. <laughs> but it, it was worth it. And, uh, you know. I it, hope they were nice to you. Oh, very nice. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, they're, I mean, I still keep contact with those guys and. You know, they probably don't even remember that they did that to me, but they did, and it was fine. And like I say, life lesson, and it's yeah. like, good to know how much better I need to get. <laughs> and the great thing is that's kind of stuck with me in, in the production world. It's like there's a level of excellence that I've been exposed to that I hope that I could expose up coming musicians to that level of excellence it's like there's a reason insert name x is getting 58 million views on youtube Uh it's because they've gone through every detail everything looks wonderful Uh and you may like the tune or not music is subjective but you can't deny that it's really awesome um, you know, I go through this a lot with some of my jazz pals. It's like this ongoing argument of like, how can you like say pop music is so wonderful? It's like, you know, Taylor Swift has compelled hundreds of millions of people to hit the buy button. There must be something that's really connecting about her even though you don't know what it is and I kind of only have an inkling of what it is Uh 
but something is very compelling about her that everyone will hit that buy button. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm not so sure I like that, but... Uh. You know, and so what's our responsibility then if we're trying to make... See, this is where that balance of commerce and art yeah. fight each other yeah. because commerce says make something everyone will like and yeah. art says make something you'll like and hope everyone will like it. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully those two paths cross somewhere. I guess, you know, I mean, um, Arthur Blythe just died this week or last week. Yeah. And uh, nobody get, no, no, nobody cared. You know, Taylor Swift dies tomorrow. You'll hear about it for the next six months. Oh, absolutely. Or more. You know. That and it also depends, like, you know, artistically who you're connected to. Well, obviously, I'm connected to Arthur Blythe. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's for me, it's like I know of several of our jazz favorites are aging, and, and their time is coming. Oh, and yeah. I, it's a dark yeah. subject, but it's like... Well, it's true. And it's going to hit me hard when a lot of these people pass. Yeah. It's yeah. like they've been my life music influence for the first six years of Oregon Music News I did all the obits mm -hmm. I put all the obits up mm -hmm. and it was terrible it was a terrible job right and then when Alan Toussaint died I said that's it I'm going to put this one up and I'm never going to do another one right because that, that that one hit me the hardest mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I mean I, I you know a couple of couple of local people I've, I've had to but uh, you know I just don't do it mm -hmm. don't do it well, <laughs> on that happy note, <laughs> I know, yeah. So, um, uh, so you 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 started you started playing in clubs. Yes. Uh, were, were you also a, a techie I, at the same time? No, I didn't do a lot of that. Um, eventually, you don't mind me calling you a techie, do you? No, that's fine. Okay, because uh, <laughs> you are. <laughs> eventually, uh, the band that I was in at the time called Collage had a deal with. Paza, which was the same label at the time that Tom Grant was on, and mm -hmm. Dan Balmer, Dan Siegel, yeah. a whole bunch of Northwest artists. Um, and Dan Siegel produced the album for us, and you know I like Dan's playing, and, and he's a really great musician, but at the time I felt like as a producer and the engineer we were working with, I felt like they're not really listening to what we want to do with the music. Oh. Uh, so I kind of got into the engineering thing with the goal of I want to help the musicians do what they want to do with their music. Uh -huh. I don't want to be the dictator of like, this is how your music needs to sound. And, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I'm actually kind of at a little bit of a quandary right now with a young artist that I'm working with because I feel like I'm slipping into that dictatorial thing of oh. this is how your music should sound and, and I'm not listening to him well enough so I'm kind of either thinking I'm going to back out of this project uh -huh. or kind of just silently slip back into the role of engineer and wow. really just listen to what he huh. wants and because huh. uh, he's a very talented singer and I think he's a good songwriter but I, I'm shaping his music too much. Ah, so did you have a, an engineering mentor or, or someone that you, you uh, hired yourself after? No, I was fortunate enough to get an internship at Sound Impressions uh -huh. the day they opened. So I kind of interned under Dan Decker and uh -huh. uh, kind of learned as best I could there and. Uh, you know, there are definitely engineers that I've looked up to through the years, like uh, all of the people who came out of the Phil Ramone school, like the Frank Filippettis and mm -hmm. Al Schmidt, and just those guys know how to get a sound, yeah. even to this day. And uh, also uh, took to Bob Clear Mountain style of mixing pretty early on, and since then have uh, drifted more towards the clarity of a Kevin Killen mm -hmm. um, or 
or George Massenberg. I mean, I love those guys' mixes. And fortunately right now, the artist that I'm working with in New York, Kevin's doing most of our mixes. Mm -hmm. So there's been a really nice connection that's happened with him. And mm -hmm. we're trading war stories now and like how how can I get better? And it's like, what do you mean? It's like, so how are the talents of a, of a mixer and an engineer different? How are they different? Um, I think it's just a specialty. You know, mixing is a subset of engineering. Uh -huh. um, and then there's mastering. Mastering is a completely different process. Mastering is like taking all those mixes and making them sound like a nice cohesive uh, unit of work. You master? I hate mastering. <laughs> Why? Uh, it's just not my specialty. You know, no. um, I think my specialty is mixing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could sit in front of monitors for hours on end listening to one song, which is certainly a trait you have to have if you're going to be a mix engineer. Or, you know, like I think I posted on Twitter the other day, it's like, well, for the last hour, I've listened to eight bars of an EDM mix I'm working on and posted, made snarky posts on Facebook. And it's like, that's kind of the patience it takes because you're looking for the detail. Is know? that patience or is that more like Howard Hughes? Uh, it's patience. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think every mixer in the world does this. Yeah. You know, there, but that said, it's like there's mixes that take an hour. There's mixes that take three days. Yeah. It's just yeah. And then somebody else takes what you've done and masters it. Yes. And the reason I don't like mastering is usually I'm too close to what I've done as a mixer uh -huh. already. And so it's like, just get a well, how do they change ears on it. Um, well, when you're mixing, you really don't have that ability to reference song to song to song like immediately back to back to back and make mm -hmm. sure how this is fixing in mm -hmm. as you're doing the process. Mm -hmm. um, once you do have a mix together, you could check to the other songs on the project, but it's like, oh, I'm so far off, but the balance feels really good. And so I'm not going to make the adjustment because this feels right. Uh, when it gets to the mastering engineer and they hear the differences in the song, mm -hmm. it's like a pretty quick fix for them. Like I've been in mastering sessions and most of them that I've been in only take like about three or four hours for a whole album. And they're working fast. It's like, oh, I hear the differences. Here, let's take a half dB off the low end and yeah. it'll match the others better. And it's like 90% of the time they're right. And I very rarely go back to mastering engineers with changes unless we do a remix or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a different discipline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of like when I was, uh, I, I did a, a, a sports show, um, uh, kind of a field-produced kind of TV-sounding mag radio magazine show when I was working as, as the, uh, it was one of the Baltimore Orioles pregame shows, right? Okay. And one of the things I used to like to do was I would go to the catcher and say, talk to me about your catcher's mitt. And he looked at me like I was crazy. On the other hand, he loved talking about his catcher's mitt because nobody ever asks him about it. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's you see the same thing in music. It's, it's the like, same thing in music, you know. Hey, what what mouthpiece are you using? Yeah. And it's like yeah. what what reed strength? Right. It's like right. come on, just yeah. play your horn. <laughs> and and I'm horrible when I get to with, together with other engineers because the last thing I like to talk about is gear. Really? Yeah, I'm just not oh. a fan of that at all. Huh. They start going, hey, what plugins are you using on your master bus? And I'm like, I, I, uh, can we have a cocktail? But you know the answer <laughs> to that question, though. I do know the yeah, answer to that question. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to talk about it. And it's not that I'm being secretive. It's yeah. just like, uh, we all use it. It's like, you know yeah. what we use. Come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> You're trying to tell me you don't have any secrets? Um, very few. Really? I mean, if but you do have some. Proprietary. I'm not asking you to tell me. No, I, I understand that. I'm, I'm thinking, like, do, yeah. you know, I'm not afraid to tell people how I do things or, uh -huh. or, or whatever. I mean, that's how they're going to learn. And if I tell them something they don't know, maybe it was a secret of mine and 
they could go and play it now or whatever. It's, I, 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 I'm not tied to that. I just yeah. want, I want music to sound good. <laughs> and, and that's speaking strictly from the sonic standpoint. The performance right. is always up to the musicians, but yeah. sonically I want it to sound good. What do you do when somebody comes in and, and is a mess? Boy, that's been a change in the industry because a lot of home recordings come in now and it's a lot of forensics. Like, how, <laughs> how did you guys record this? And then it becomes a matter of like, can I make this sound cool even though it's a mess? Um, and, and usually the answer is you try to find something to latch onto and build around that. Mm. Um, hopefully it's in the groove. Uh, if the groove's not there, then please start over. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things we yeah. could fix in the studio. Um, but you but can't fix stupid. We can't fix <laughs> lack of character. Yeah. We can't fix, you know, I think of somebody like Tom Waits who's like, mm -hmm. has this very distinct voice and it's like, I like Tom Waits albums and it's like, mm -hmm. You want to put an album of his on as an engineer or producer and go, man, those vocals are great. They're really in tune. They're <laughs> like spot on. But if you did that, it wouldn't be Tom Waits. Right. Right. So uh, I, I have a tough time crossing the tuning path sometimes, uh -huh. especially when a singer is singing with character. Um, but I don't have a problem po crossing that line if they're going, I want this to sound like pop radio right now. It's like, okay, here are the things we need to do. We need to quantize the drums. We need to get everything tightened up. We need to tune the vocals or you need to sing them in tune. Oh, and it has to have the greatest outpouring of emotion that you've ever given in a vocal performance of your life. Just little Just simple things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! But you know, it's again, it's like things make it to a radio for a reason. I mean, even the jazz shows. I mean, I'm sure DJ looks at the list of what they could play, and it's like, oh, this one is great tune. Uh, that one, uh, not not so much. But I'm going to play these great tunes over and over. Right. Um, and I think that it's like. A small example of what happens at pop music, except there's one big radio service yes. you know, yeah. Yeah. calling the shots for, okay, mm -hmm. this is the song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the old days, it used to be uh, how much cocaine the PR guy gave you. <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> That's what God played. And, 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 long, and long before that, in the, in, the, in, the, in the early days of rock and roll, it was play this or I'll kill you because <laughs> because you know the record companies were run by the mob right almost everything was run by the mob at that point uh, but uh, uh, you know we did uh, a lot of people just have no especially people who have fond memories of the of rock and roll from the 50s as I do and I think about oh some guy was standing in front of the guy's desk saying you play this or I'm going to cut your hand off you know, and that's yeah, Nick Tachis writes about that right. a, a lot, and and uh, you know, uh, not that I, not that that wouldn't happen today, because we, you know, the, the Italian mafia is gone, but not all of them, not all, not all of the mafias are gone, you know, and the gangs. Right. So, you know, how much of that goes on in, in the hip hop world? How much of that goes on, you know, with with uh, uh, people tied to oligarchs? We have no, I mean, I, have I no don't idea. know. <laughs> I don't know. I can only assume because, you know, the thing, the other thing, the only thing is it may not be as much, it's, it's not as lucrative as, as it used to be. There's not as much money to be made in music as there used to be, right? Right, right. Yeah. Depending on, yeah, depending on genre. I, I look at... So you get low-level gangsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, I look at film scores as being the new classical music. Yeah. Um, you know, people are not writing. Well, there are people writing concertos, but they're not, you know, being touted as the next great thing. But 
you could hear John Williams conducting the Oregon Symphony doing film scores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to me, that has blossomed into being the new outlet for classical music. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Philip Glass, of course, has written for many, 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 you know, I mean, if, if it wasn't for his score for Koyanis Katsi, what, what would that movie have been? True. You know? Yeah. Um, and he's coming to town. Yep. He's going to be here in the fall to play uh, uh, along. Was it, is he playing along with the movie this time? I forget. Remember? Did you did you see him when he when he came I, to town? I didn't see him. Oh I would my have liked god! To that have was that. that was like one of the highlights of my whole life, to sit there and, and watch them play along with Koyanis Katsi and not miss a beat yeah. and have it be absolutely perfect. You know, them sitting in front of me playing it and watching the movie at the same time. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine was a, uh, a theater uh, projectionist. <laughs> and we both had a thing for Koyanis Katsi when it came out. Mm-hmm. And he never returned the print. And we would, <laughs> we, we would get stoned in the afternoon. To, Let's go up and watch Koyanis Katsi. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> well, if you could, you know, it was, it was a big theater with a yeah. huge screen. Oh, yeah. Great silver screen. And just no, one of the best experiences of my life was um, I was in Los Angeles, and I have a friend who's a re-recordist, guy who makes his films. And I got to see Life of Pi in Atmos as they were doing the print master. Wow. It's just like, this is great. (laughs) Empty theater. (laughs) Yeah. Sit where you want. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and this is as good as it's going to sound ever. (laughs) And, you know, and I always ask him, it's like, well, what's it like to go to a theater when and see a film you've worked on it's uh-huh. like it's always played too loud <laughs> yeah, it's like you know true. you've sat in the the, yeah. the dub stage with me we don't mix that loud i mean we mix for <laughs> it to be effectively loud yeah. but we don't mix loud <laughs> have you have you ever have you ever worked on a, on a metal a metal album yes what was that like um loud (laughs) no uh it it's fine i mean again you look at the musicians and are they doing their craft at the top of their their game and um you know like i used to work with this punk band poison i did a lot yeah and they were all just sweethearts and you know unfortunately a couple of them were involved pretty heavily in drugs but uh what a shock yeah what a shock um but they were deep into the music, uh-huh. deep into the culture, and they played that music really well. One, two, three, four. Yeah, or faster. <laughs> <laughs> or faster. And, and it was interesting because their singer, Jerry A., it's like uh-huh. you perceive this in the recording like he's just yelling these lyrics and screaming them. Yeah. But you go out into the, the performance space and, it's not loud. It's a technique. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And just get that big growling, <laughs> wild sound. So um, what what are you working on that's going to come out fairly soon? Uh, let's see. Well, we got the Chance Hayden thing. Um, I'm working with a songwriter, Kit Taylor, who uh-huh. used to be the keyboardist with Intervision. Uh-huh. Um, I remember that. He's He's learning the songwriting craft and he's now getting some assistance from Marv Ross with the lyric writing Uh Um, but he is really great at coming up with that hook for a chorus Uh that just makes you go that's what the song's about Uh okay now somebody write the lyric oh I mean musically okay gotcha yeah so now somebody write the lyric to get us to that hook yeah and (laughs) so he's he's very good with the music um Man. Uh, Jacob Westfall, I, uh-huh. I'll be starting an EP with him this summer, um, which for me is like tomorrow, just around the corner. <laughs> I wish. Um, I'm just finished a project with, or my portion of the project with Mick Schaefer. I'm producing an album for him, 
and it's going to Dean Baskerville to be mixed, uh-huh. and uh, then I'll listen to the mixes and put my final stamp of approval on them. But uh, a lot of great players on this album. Uh, Jason Thomas is playing guitar, uh-huh. and uh, Jeremy Burchett on drums, and uh, Captain on bass, uh-huh. uh, Michael Elson on piano. Yeah. Um, great horn section, and Mick sings with nothing but heart. Uh-huh. So it's ah. it's actually kind of the unexpected highlight of, of my year so far. Wow. Um, when do you think that might be out? Hopefully midsummer. Okay. Yeah, it'll be kind of a, you know, he came into the project describing it as gypsy blues, and I think we're <laughs> coming out of the project describing it as blues country or, or something, <laughs> you know, that... The gypsy is gone out of it. Is that right? <laughs> but but there's a really great focus that it didn't have before we started the project, and, uh-huh. and Mick uh-huh. is uh-huh. way way into it. So that so would be good. you do you engineer that? Uh, produced. Produced. It. Uh, okay. Dean Baskerville engineered, gotcha. and uh, it, it's fun having to only wear the producer's hat and not the producer and engineer hat. So you never want to like. Move over being <laughs> at the console there and just shove well, over a little uh, well bit. I, yeah, I think <laughs> you know every producer has done that to me at some point yeah. when I'm engineering, and, and it's like, oh, try this or, yeah, yeah. or try that, and yeah. it's like, or you know, what if we tried a different microphone on the snare drum for this song so it's just uh-huh. a little weirder, or a little yeah. stranger, yeah. or fits the lyric of the song better. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll try to make sonic decisions. And I really like working with Dean because it, it really does turn into a team of like, here's the lyric. How do we make the sound of the band fit the lyric versus, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, th- to me, that's important that, yeah. that the sound and the attitude of the band fits what's going on in the lyric. Then it makes it easier for the vocalist to sure. ultimately sing the lyric. Sure. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thanks for coming back. Oh, you're welcome. You know what? As this, I like this one better. <laughs> I, I'm like you. I can't really remember what we no, talked but, about but last not, time. <laughs> no, but I have a really good feeling about this. Good. Uh, and um, when we did the other one, we were in. We were stuck in a little room in yes. there because uh, there was a conflict with the, with the, the the actual cupping room. Yeah. Well, that was terrific. Thank you for coming. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it.